tonight I want to put in context and in place a whole area of history. If you talk about ancient history, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Anybody? Ancient history? Romans and Greeks, exactly. So how would you want to, how would you describe the history that was history to them, the Greeks? Herodotus is called the father of history. There was no ancient Greece was going on at that time. Rome hadn't started. Phoenicia. Phoenicia. But even that is classical times, really. Phoenicians go back to the seventh century. Has anybody got an idea of a, a way? I'm really interested. Because, in fact, there is no marking on any shelf in a library. They call it archaeology or various ways. So there's no, nothing that would guide you, pinpoint you straight down in on this area. So can anybody think? The area that I'm going to talk about tonight, the time, is from the first pyramid to the fall of Troy. The, the Mesopotamians, the Assyrians are all again, you see, would you be talking about the, 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 the really powerful Assyrians of the seventh century with those great uh, statues of seraphim with the uh, or would you be talking about old Assyria, old Asher, it was called. The Sumerians, how would you describe the Sumerians and the old Egyptians? Pre-classical, quite a good, the pre-classical age. There were a number of people in the ancient, what we call ancient history, looking at this pre-classical age. Herodotus in Assyria, those people, there was a man called Manetho, who we only have little extracts of in Egypt, but he wrote a great history of Egypt, which Herodotus might have known, for example. Um, but there's one book, two books, which came through in their entirety about this period, and that's Homer and the Bible. And the Bible, in my opinion, has had a very rough deal. It's an extremely interesting book that has gradually been whittled away. And if you look at your pictures, you will see what people felt was the sort of magnificence on one side of the page, the pictures, is the magnificence of the Exodus in uh, the 19th century. And it's slowly been whittled down to this group of shepherds leaving Egypt. Why? Why has there been this big change of mind? about the Hebrews. Because they've stuck absolutely rigidly to the chronology of chroniclers working in the 7th century BC. Now at the same time, for example, Herodotus was working and he got the pyramids at quite the wrong end of Egyptian history. His chronology was a bit askew. We can hardly cast our minds back to a time when there was no BC and no AD. It's difficult to imagine how difficult it is to fit and juggle with dates when you don't have a wonderful framework like BC and AD. You sweep that aside and you're dealing with the reigns of kings only. Some of them lived a long time, some of them lived a short time. So long as there are kings, a single king and a single court, you can keep track of time. But what about when there's no court and no kings? Times when the barbarians invade, crush. Other times there are two kings, 
kingdoms get divided and there's a king of the north and a king of the south. This caused a lot of confusion in Egypt. They would add the, the years of both kings together and you would get terribly extended history of Egypt in the early days. It had to be worked out, sorted out and gradually pared down. I've brought a Bible. I've never cut a Bible up. But I want to demonstrate something with it. I wondered if somebody would like to come up and cut up a Bible. When I was young, somebody wrote a, a book called First Slice Your Cookbook. It was very cleverly divided across the page so that you would get a first course, a second course and a third course. And you could flip through like those books of heads, bodies and legs and get the, the menu that you wanted for all three courses and, and have it open at the right page each time. I'm going to turn to the end of the first book of Kings. King called Omri. If somebody would like to come and cut this book. Cool, you're smiling. Why not? I don't mind doing it. I mean, I bought a good knife for it. It should work. It shouldn't be too difficult. I think you might as well cut it right at the end of the first book of Kings. There. Slice off that. Is it going to come? Are you going to need this stronger? Good. Don't worry about the odd page we can photocopy and make. You can try tearing if you like, having got it started. Like a karate man. It's not going to go. I take over. Show the audience. Yes, one cut by I'm going to have a, have a go. I don't think you're. I think my knife is too blunt, perhaps. You may need a bread knife. I've never tried cutting a Bible before, so I don't know what knife to, to bring. I, could, I don't think I'll bother right in front of you. Could do, would do the same for the, for, the, for the whole of the New Testament. And what you would have is a lovely trilogy. There's the New Testament. And you take that off. What you have now is a nice trilogy. One of the things about talks is you can hardly ever remember what anybody said. But I think you'll remember this by <laughs> a few days later or a few weeks later. I think you'll remember this Bible in three parts. You've got a trilogy. Do you know what a triptych is on the altar? You would get a big central panel painted by Bosch and then two side panels. When you opened it, you could close it and then you opened it up and you've got the two side panels panels go to the side. So the, the, the centre one was always thicker. This is about 600 pages, 300 pages for the New Testament, and 300 pages for what I'm going to call the Old World, the Old Testament. This is the Middle Testament, this is a thick fat one, and then the New Testament. This is the one that has got short shift, because it's been just nailed on to the other one, when in fact there should be a gap. They've stuck rigidly to the chronicle, um, the dating of the chroniclers, instead of looking for the main events. This Old Testament deals with four major events. The first is Joseph. The second is the plagues and exodus. The third is the conquest of Israel. And the fourth is the great empire of David and Solomon. Do you know, I mean you're quite educated in the field enough to know a little bit about those stories, are you? These 
this fills three quarters of this book. There's a little bit of laws in Leviticus and Numbers, you know, but three quarters of this book is about those four stories. And when they're jammed together and put into what I call the Dark Ages, because it was a Dark Ages, there is no corroboration of these stories. So slowly the academics, the scholars, have whittled down the story till they're just a band of shepherds. Then Joseph is not known. They leave Egypt unnoticed, no comment by anybody. The plagues, if they happened, nobody in Egypt noticed them. They um, crossed the Dead Sea, well, you wouldn't expect that. You would hardly expect to find them in the wilderness. Uh, I mean, people moving through the wilderness. Do they leave a trace? Don't they leave a trace? Do archaeologists find it if they do? But then they conquer the land. Should be some sort of archaeological trace, so there's a theory that there's infiltration. It's all been whittled down, so they have to be a very small band of shepherds who aren't noticed by historians of the time. Plenty of writing, but never mention of them. So this grand cavalcade has to be reduced and reduced and reduced. What I've done is cut the book. Put the first thousand years it is that these events cover. There, there are only four events, only three periods of history. But the first one is Joseph. Then 400 years, nothing. Just says 400 years went by. Then Moses, Exodus, conquest. Then 400 years, judges, very little flimsy stories, mostly mythological. And then the great empire of David and Solomon, which should leave a trace. There should be some sign of wealth, trade, etc. Nothing, according to Kathleen Kenyon, all the great archaeologists, they can't find any trace of that. <coughs> what I've done is taken those four events and said, well, I don't care where they took place, when they took place at all, but is there any corroboration of any of them? You start with Joseph. What are the main features of the story of Joseph? He is a man of dreams. Many dreams. His brother's dream of... And he dreams of his brothers bowing down to him as stars. Then he gets thrown into prison. And then the Pharaoh dreams and he's the one who can interpret the dreams. Um, seven year famine. Um, he centralized government quite a lot. He collected tithes and centralized government. Various other features of the story. But I thought, I'll never find one man. We hardly know who the Sumerians were. And I was looking at about 2700 BC for various reasons. But I didn't mind where it was. I was looking anywhere. And there is a man called Imhotep. Has anybody heard of Imhotep? Ah, scholars. He is the master builder of the first step pyramid. That interests me because Joseph was, in popular tradition, the, the pyramids were his granaries. We know they weren't granaries and so on, but there might be some thread of evidence between the pyramids and this Joseph. Then, one of the very last Egyptian inscriptions to be found was on a vast stone, but it was very faintly carved, and it was in a very inaccessible spot. It was ten foot high, and they found this inscription about Imhotep and a seven-year famine. This plays a very prominent part in, in the Bible, if you don't know. But it, this was extraordinarily interesting. A real possibility that this could be Joseph. He, he saves the country from a seven-year famine, and Pharaoh has a dream at the same time. He then collects tithes, makes everybody centralize his government. And this is just at the beginning of the Pyramid Age, when you would need a great centralization of government in order to build such extraordinary structures. 
It wasn't what I was looking for. It wasn't the thumping great piece of evidence that I was looking for. I wanted something that would really anchor this whole interesting story. I'll get to the point slightly why, because I'm a literary man, and there was something fishy about the way it was being treated. Um, so you come to the plagues. You want some evidence of plagues in Egypt. If you remember, there was darkness. Um, Moses throws dust in the air and darkness covers the earth. There were frogs. There was famine. There were uh, hail, terrible hailstones. They have to collect the cattle. There is some um, scenes where the, 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 the Israelites beg gold and silver and everything off the Egyptians and go away with their gold and silver, probably covering up the fact that they've actually plundered it, robbed it. Um, and the Nile is turned to blood. It so happens that 400 years after this Imhotep, builder of the first step pyramid, the pyramid age in Egypt collapsed dreadfully. It was one of the most stable periods, 400 years of, of government, that has ever been known on earth. Immensely powerful, and they built the Great Pyramid after the Step Pyramid that um, Imhotep designed. It came to an end in a catastrophic period, of which we have certain indications. Terrible earthquakes is absolutely definite, we know that. And I shall get on in a minute to a type of catastrophe that might have happened. There is an Egyptian text about it, called The Lament of the Sage Ipua. He mentions, the Nile is turned to blood. He says, there is darkness over the land. Even at noon, man cannot read the sundial. He says, our people are so desolate that they feed themselves to the crocodiles, but the crocodiles won't eat them. They've had enough. Fat with corpses. A time extremely equivalent to those plagues, I would say. Moses moves out of that time. He moves out from a, 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 an Egypt of great sophistication. One scholar compares Memphis of that time to Elizabethan London. It was about that size, great cities, wonderful civilization. Sets off into the desert with 600,000 men. You see them there marching in the old tradition. Curiously, in the same era, this is 2300 BC, 4300 years ago, there is a freak occupation of the Negev. It's by a people who have with them conch shells from the Red Sea and ostrich eggs from Egypt, which has led Professor Cohen, a recent uh, work, to suggest that this that they were definitely coming from Egypt on their way to the Levant and he is one of the few people who is beginning to say perhaps these were the Israelites perhaps this was the great exodus another man, Professor Anati has found a temple on a mountain that is very like the temple Moses built on Mount Sinai fits the description perfectly and he also suggests that the exodus took place a thousand years earlier than previously supposed the gap the gap between volume 1, the Old Testament, volume 2, the Middle Testament, volume 3, the New Testament. In the description of the time in the wilderness, there is interesting talk of the sun standing still in the sky for nine days. Rubbish. 
It's impossible, isn't it? Can anybody think of a way that that would be possible? Just lies. But this was a very catastrophic period. Really the face of the earth changed a bit. And what one person has suggested, and various people have followed up, and I think it's an interesting possibility, that it was a time when a comet came too close to the earth, causing a massive disruption. And it could, inconceivably, but these were very sophisticated people writing, coming out of Egypt to the high civilization, it could have tilted the earth on its side. The sun would have stood, would have shone for nine days, and it righted itself. Spinning all the time. Couldn't stop spinning, or we wouldn't be here. But spinning all the time, it's just possible. It, it, it was knocked off its axis by a, another comet. An interesting idea, which is slightly corroborated by the fiery serpents. They meet with fiery serpents in the desert, and this would apparently be uh, consistent with tails, the tail of a comet dropping to earth fiery particles, like we know meteorites and things fall from the heavens. Still nothing that I would call definite. But the next piece of evidence, I think it's simply grotesque the way it's been misinterpreted. In the 30s, Professor Garstang dug up Jericho and he found there walls lying flat and nomadic invaders camped on the site above them. Immediately this was hailed as the find of the century, the great archaeological find of the century for biblical, biblical, biblical archaeologists. Two decades later, in the 50s, Kathleen Kenyon uh, re-stratified, if you know about archaeology, you can tell the dates by going down the layers very, very carefully. And she found that Professor Garstang had done his work in a bit of a slipshod way. And that these walls, although they certainly were, had something in common with the walls of Jericho, the, the, the story. You know the story where the, you blow trumpets and the walls fall down and they all move in and do good. Um, found that these walls were a thousand years too early for Joshua's attack. Joshua's attack, they had the prejudice, the absolute narrow-minded straight thing, that there was no two ways about it. Joshua's attack took place around 1400 BC. There was no evidence for it. There were no walls of Jericho, there were no few cities burnt, but we know why. They were mm, punishing people and so on. Um, no evidence for a conquest then. But it happened then, so then she made up imaginary walls, fantastic walls, that had been washed away and there was no trace of them for 1400, and there were these real walls lying there all the time. And she, nor anybody between that day and Professor, Cohen, uh, Professor Anati writing in 1986, ever suggested that those walls were definitely the walls of Jericho, just before the attack of Joshua. And that this took place a thousand years earlier than anybody had guessed before. There are tombs nearby that are just like the Egyptian tombs, great big cavernous shaft tombs. Um, they bury in exactly the Egyptian manner, except they have no images of any gods. Which can't help reminding one of Moses' laws, thou shalt not make graven images. What is more, the, true, the tombs reveal a tribal structure of at least seven different tribes. Kathleen Kenyon calls them the bead type, the dagger type, the shaft type, the outsized type. They're different type way of burying the dead. 
indicating different tribal customs, ways of burying the dead. We know that the Israelites, the Hebrews, had twelve tribes. That was the, the shocking great piece of evidence that I started with. When I read that book, it was called uh, Chapter 8, Nomadic Invaders, of Digging Up Jericho by Kathleen Kenyon, I thought, well, this could be them. But, if it is, I must find evidence of the plagues in Egypt around that time. I must find evidence of a Joseph and, and, and I must look for. And that came afterwards. It was that, that was the starting point of my work. I'd read Belikovsky, who'd, who'd also suggested there was something fishy about the Old Testament, went around, went around solving it in a very different way. So now, we were looking for the empire of David and Solomon. We wanted it to be about 400 years after this invasion. And what do you find? An extraordinary, wealthy empire, based in the Levant, based in the very place where the Old Testament people were supposed to live. Huge fortress cities, the biggest city ever built in that land was at Hazor, with great walls around them, and then these very distinctive grasses. They were plastered slopes, which were thought to be against battering rams or siege towers. You couldn't get up them with a siege tower, it would topple over. You couldn't, get up, you couldn't run up them with a battering ram to batter at the gates. They, they stretched right round the Levant, from the Euphrates, right down to Sharora and very near the Nile. Extremely wealthy. How do we know? No wealth is found. Nothing gets recycled like wealth. Gold is what you pay off your enemies with, what you buy your freedom with, etc., etc., ransoms. Nothing big has been found. But we have the descriptions of Tutmose III's expeditions, Amenhopis is the first, second, and third expeditions into Egypt, and the enormous booty that they took out of that land. The white gold, the red gold, hundreds of pounds in weight of it. Carried down into Egypt to build Tutankhamun's tomb. All that great new empire civilization. Because this was the first empire on earth. Pre-Tutankhamun. Pre the Hittite empire, if you've heard of these other empires. They founded their wealth on the bow and the chariot. They founded their empire on the bow and the chariot. These were innovations at the time. I've given you a picture of the, of the light war chariot on the, on the back there. At, at the time of Seti I, which is after the period I'm talking about. But we know these people who were called the Hyksos, the foreign rulers of Egypt, who ruled from the Egypt certainly right up through the Levant and, 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 and probably into Mesopotamia and Assyria. Um, they introduced the horse and chariot into Egypt. And we have a text in the tomb of uh, a man, Amos, which uh, describes the siege of Avaris and them collecting their horses together. And we know that, they, that it's always been thought, and that, and that was the final confirmation proof that they'd introduced these chariots. Their downfall was swift, not unlike like us with Saddam Hussein selling the atom bomb. <laughs> Solomon, or whoever this, these emperors were, sold their chariots and their strong bows. Their bows it, they'd had bows and arrows for a long time, but at this time they introduced a magnificent bow, what is called the composite, the Asian composite bow. It was made up of um, sinew down the outside, which stretched, and horn down the inside, 
which was compressed and this made a very powerful longbow a real killing weapon which a few archers could attack a city they could hold off uh, an army very, very important and they sold these weapons to their enemies and their enemies within a very short time swooped in and I described the plunder that the pharaohs took to Egypt the Hittites did the same founded their great empire in the north the Mitanni had meanwhile taken over Mesopotamia and, and, and swept in from the east each with a third of an empire powerful enough in its way it's important to know that these people were Hebrew speaking people had customs very much in common with the, with the, the biblical Hebrews but they've been compared very often without ever saying that they were just the same people then our ancestors perhaps we don't quite know where our blood is we've probably got the blood of everyone in us by now from Egypt to the north but our ancestors swept down on this ancient Bronze Age civilization which had lasted 2,000 years if you take the whole span of civilization with writing it covers about 5,000 years the first part is 2,500 years that we hardly have a name for we were noticing the second part is from ancient Greece half of civilization and it was smashed we called the sea peoples but they were the same as the Celtic Vedic people who swept from India to Ireland you know about a bit do you anyway there was a the great Indo-European culture that grew up at this time at the beginning of the Iron Age and they had iron weapons which gave them enormous superiority and they rode horses would you like a reading at this stage of the most gruesome chapter in the Bible let's have the most gruesome chapter in the Bible <laughs> I get it out of my I've quoted it here but it even the pharaohs say of of this period they say that the, 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 the people we're talking about the West Semites it's as if they had never been they have been wiped out the Bible speaks of we were numerous as the stars plentiful as the sands of the, uh, beside the sea and now we are few our numbers we are rare as gold as fine gold and they have various curses um, one of them is at the end of, of uh, Deuteronomy they have various curses which I think may describe real events um, the curses before this time were not so gruesome but after the breakup of the ancient world which happens as I say at the beginning of the Iron Age the Hittites disappeared, the Mycenaean Greeks changed dramatically their, their, their old culture was destroyed and a new Greek culture grew out of the ruins of it Crete disappeared partly in the, the earthquake um, the, the Assyrians changed dramatically the, um, the Levant was totally destroyed right down to Tar and then only Egypt held on and this may be a description of it from the Bible the Lord will bring against you a nation from afar from the end of the earth as swift as the eagle flies a nation whose language you do not understand a nation of stern countenance who shall not regard the person of the old or show favour to the young and shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed who also shall not give you grain, wine or oil the increase of your cattle or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish they shall besiege you in all your towns your high and fortified walls which, in which you trusted 
will come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you in all your towns that the Lord God has given you and you shall eat the offspring of your own body the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you the man who is the most tender and delicately bred among you will grudge food to his brother to the wife of his bosom and to the last of, his, of the children who remain to him so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating because he has nothing left him in the siege and in the stress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns the most tender and delicately bred woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot upon the ground because she is so delicate and tender will grudge to the husband of her bosom to her son and to her daughters her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because she will eat them secretly for want of all things in the, siege, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns not a work of imagination I don't think I think something has happened has a ring of truth So the Bronze Age civilization was destroyed at that time. It, it, uh, and we've been left with a heritage of a book, a very great book. I would like to call it one of the seven wonders of the literary world. It's still an amazing bestseller. Compiled on this reckoning, at least the first part, more than 3,000 years ago. How we, how we got it may be described in the Bible itself. They were repairing the temple which had huge megalithic stones and they found a book there and it's described in some detail, the finding of this book. But it is a freak occurrence from the ancient world. There wasn't much more than Homer in this book and then shreds and tatters until we started our archaeological digs only a hundred years ago. Schliemann, it took Schliemann to convince people that the Mycenaean Greeks existed at all. They thought they were all just stories, Sophocles' plays and, and all that. They didn't really believe that they existed and that Troy had existed. He dug up Troy. Wonders of the world whether material wonders like the pyramids or books come out of high civilizations. I don't know if anybody would like to contribute. There's just been a, a recent competition in the, um, the Times to name the seven wonders of the modern world. Have you seen? And uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world were all um, quite extraordinary. There was this 40-foot statue of Zeus that you see with the eye of all the flesh parts made out of small plates of ivory and a, a pool of olive oil so the light reflected up onto it but they were magnificent and coming out of magnificent civilizations in each, in each case would anybody like to name the seven wonders of the literary world something different I mean what they think of as the great writers or books or small libraries of, of the world between any time between that time and this which one? I can't hear Dante, good. 
Yes, Virgil, I quite agree. I would agree. Surely somebody's going to say Shakespeare. <laughs> Unpatriotic lot. But in each case, an extraordinary civilization bred this. To imagine those shepherds that I put on the front of there, twiddling their toes in the sand and writing a work of this magnitude, is what I found nonsense, what I found fishy. That's my literary bent. And when I found that this other people, the so-called West State Semites, who happened to speak Hebrew and had lived this extraordinary span from the First Pyramid to the Fall of Troy and then been um, uh, decimated, it seemed a far more likely candidate than this group of shepherds starting about that time, living through the Dark Ages that followed. But I, tonight I just want to sow a seed. I read this man, Velikovsky, when I was about your age, and it sowed a seed, which I'm still working on now and talking about tonight. And just to get that idea, and to think for yourselves, I'm near to being called a crank, a little bit on the edge of that. But it's another nicer word for it, is divergent thinker. People who think for themselves. In each case, there's a lot to think about, a lot of mysteries, a lot of interesting things to think about. And the way you assess these things is not being always for the established way of thinking or against it. Being for the established way of thinking has slowly become suspect. It's called groupthink in America. And one of the occasions where it became suspect was Pearl Harbor. Everybody thought the same. And they kept saying, no, the Japanese aren't a worry in high circles. And they all patted each other on the back and said, it's fine. And suddenly, Geez. But there was one man saying all along, look, we've lost sight of the fleet, which was last seen heading for Pearl Harbor. Look out. And he wasn't listened to. He was a divergent thinker. You have to listen to him. Another time was, was, was a rocket launching to the moon, I think it was, and uh, there was one mechanic who was saying, look, this thing isn't in order. Let's just postpone it a month. He wasn't listened to. And a lot of nice teachers got burnt up on the launching pad. It's very important to listen to your own inner voice and assess the evidence for yourselves, think for yourselves, neither going along completely with what you're taught in the classroom nor just being rebellious and going against it for the sake of it, but just assessing each um, situation for itself. And particularly, I think you'll live long enough, I may not, but you'll live long enough to see a, a, a reassessment of this material in the Bible. Thank you. That was all I wanted to say. Sequence. Thank you very much indeed. There's lots of food for thought there. And a chance for questions. Can I start off perhaps by just clarifying? You're actually acquainting Joseph with Timothy. That's right. But putting the whole, um, the whole age back a thousand years, a thousand years where Joseph is concerned, and where the plagues are concerned, and where Jericho is concerned, and where the empire is concerned. But not, of course, where the pyramids are concerned. No, the pyramids are there, but yeah. Joseph goes back to being the builder of the first one. It's the it's the biblical narrative that needs to be adjusted. This bit here that needs to go back. You see, the trouble is that nothing disappears like a gap. If you, put, if you put two things together, if you say that Omri 
when so-and-so died, Omri ruled. Jehoshaphat died, Zimri died, Omri ruled. Well, if a, if a chronicler does that, it's very difficult to detect. You can't, you can't actually say, well, in there is 400 years. It disappears. You just try it. Nothing happened in that 400 years, and nobody bothered to record it. What happened was that, what I described to you, the, um, first of all, you get, you get a little bit of the situation where, where the pharaohs are coming up invading, the Hittites are coming down invading, the Matania are coming down. So this destroys the court. All the main courtiers, all the kings were carted off as slaves to Egypt at that time. So there, there's no court and no chronicler to, to keep track of it. Then the sea peoples that I described came, where I think that was a terrible time when the people were besieged in their towns and everything. They were called the sea peoples, but they swept down and they just decimated everybody. And then there's a slow rebuilding project takes about 200 to 300 years till you get Omri rebuilding Samaria and the, what's called the recovery anyway. I mean, we know it was bad and that after Solomon it got bad. We know that. But it got much worse than they realised and there's a much bigger um, period involved. When you said the, you know, the Bible has got a bad press, I mean, as far as archaeology is concerned, does it not accept or does it, does it not try to confirm it bends over backwards to confirm it, I'm saying in the wrong period. It doesn't look, you see, so that it's, what it's saying is, how can we bend over backwards to say that there was an empire when there wasn't? So basically it says the empire stretches to the suburbs of Jerusalem, and it just must have been only there, which they can't dig up, because there's a, there's a modern city on top of it. So what happens when you go to these sort of people and you say, well, what about this theory about this moving back? What do they do? They, they get hot under the collar. It's most extraordinary. This, this is an area of high emotion. But they haven't got anything to prove their point either. No, nothing. And this has been going on, I mean, this man Velikovsky started in 52, and the emotion around him is just quite extraordinary. I once mentioned it to a don. Um, I was talking about my ideas, and he was quite open to them as new ideas. And then I said, well, of course, Velikovsky um, was suggesting something similar, a redating. He called his book Ages in Chaos. The dates are all in chaos, you know. And the man went purple in the face and bowled me out of the room. And this is high emotion. It's a very emotional area. Religion is a very emotional area. People are very for it or very against it, but they're very emotional about it. And this has led to an obscuration. You know about fundamentalists and, uh, and all that sort of thing, but this can lead to an obscuration of just trying to get the plain truth, regardless of the emotions. I mean, in some ways, this might suit a religious person. In some ways, they would say, well, Solomon really did have an empire. In other ways, it won't suit them at all, because this, these people worship many gods. We know all about their gods. We know a lot about them. That won't suit religious people. I'm no fundamentalist. I, you know, that it's not trying to prove the Bible true. That is my... I'm talking about the zodiac, um, the mythology of the zodiac and everything tomorrow. Uh, it's a completely different religion they had. The whole idea that they worshipped Yahweh and only one God. It's a very interesting religion. It's the religion of Egypt, the same religion. They brought it down into Egypt. They left with it. All the tribes are named after the twelve signs of the zodiac. But so that won't suit them. So it doesn't. It's trying to get the truth, regardless of whether it suits you religiously, regardless of what your emotions are about it. Just, just the truth, and then from there you work what you think, but I think it will help to get a more universal religion, a less narrow one, if we, if we do come to realize some of these things. I must ask you again, I asked why the pyramids? 
the talk was talk, called from the first pyramid to the fall of Troy to try and give I, this came out of, of my talking about the Bronze Age to somebody and I said don't talk about the Bronze Age I, mean, I don't know what the Bronze Age is and actually nobody knows what the Bronze Age is because it starts when bronze comes and it finishes when iron comes and this is different in all the different uh, countries around um, Europe and everything so it's a, it's a nondescript kind of thing but this is the start and pyramids are a very key um, feature um, It's the beginning of high civilization to begin with. I mean, the Pyramid Age is. is, is, is uh... Does anybody know the, the oldest city in the world? Uh, uh, no. It's Jericho. It is, yes. You cheated, you read my book. <laughs> you looked at that page. You didn't. No, Pro- Professor Anati suggests it's 6,000 BC, 8,000 years old. Jericho had high walls, magnificent terrace gardens, a spiral staircase into a tower and a real city and he suggests they got rich on the treasures of the Dead Sea salt when they started boiling meat very valuable sulphur for making fire and above all bitumen for caulking boats they had a lot of trees in that area at that time the oldest great navigators were Phoenicians and this is just when big navigation starts I think I might as well get on to pyramids pyramids one interesting aspect of pyramids is, is the Mayan temples. Do you know the Mayan temples? Incredibly like ziggurats or pyramids. Ziggurats in Mesopotamia, pyramids, Mayan temples. Just even that one... We talk about navigation, the Phoenicians, great navigators. All the ports along the Mediterranean. They were the ports of Assyria, Mesopotamia. Did they go to America or didn't they? Who knows anything about trips to America before Columbus? Which one? I don't know, Brendan. Oh yes, well, uh, the, the Vikings, yes. Now I'm talking about my period actually, but I agree that it's a possibility that uh, the Vikings and, and Brendan went. I think it's now thought that there were quite a few Phoenician voyages to South America before Christ's time. That's right. Now I find that over 2,000 Phoenician inscriptions according to one authority in the in Exactly. But, but the real pioneer of all that was the Contiki man. Do you not read uh, about or know about Contiki and Fra? He, um, after Contiki, he modelled a boat exactly on the picture inside one of the pyramids, which is a boat made out of papyrus plants, not even wood. They didn't have wood in Egypt. They got their wood for their coffins from the Levant, from the area we're talking about, the Phoenicians. But they made a boat out of papyrus plants. And he modelled this boat and he set off, um, just in the 70s or something, in, it, in the boat called Fra, and he got within sight of uh, South America, in land, when the boat buckled like this, and he remembered one wire, which he thought was unimportant, which went from the um, prow to the mast, and he left that off, he thought it wasn't important, and he realised if he just put that on, that one thread, it would have stopped this buck thing, <laughs> which was, stopped him, I mean he got within sight of land, but it stopped him doing the trip as perfectly as he would have liked. Well, he did it again the second time successfully, didn't he? Oh, did he? Oh, I, I, well, I'm not up in that. <coughs> Do it with that, with that special wire. Mm. Well, it's, it's, apparently, it's just difficult to get from the straight border to Brazil. Uh, or no. Because you just sit on the current. That's right. There's a huge current. And there's a there and back current as well. You can come back on the Gulf Stream if you go up a bit and then come back, if they knew about that. The reason why most of the Europeans have gone to Europe is because it's got wrecked in the 
sort of West Indies was because we insisted rather classically on taking the third moment and we were battling against the prevailing wind. <laughs> Instead of going down the stretch of walk and just sitting on the couch, which is what we were supposed to do. Yes. Yes. And you see, Phoenicians had wood, so if you imagine well caught wood compared with this, this papyrus, they, they were really likely. But, you know, uh, there's a very good book called Before Columbus by um, Cyrus Gordon. He's one of the great uh, pioneers in this area. He's not much liked for his efforts, but uh, he wrote one called Before the Bible, which describes this world of bullfighting and uh, this Bronze Age world very well. And his Before Columbus, he has a massive evidence of how did the vine get to South America at exactly that time, how did the pig get here. I can't remember it all, but it was all this trafficking across the Atlantic at that time in various commodities which weren't there before, you can tell from the fossil um, record and things, and suddenly were there, and, and it's almost certain they were taken there in, in these boats. There's a lot of other, a lot of other evidence in, in Greek writers um, talk about places where the sun goes round in the north, which is already the southern hemisphere. You're beginning to get big voyages and trips like that, places where the, the land is covered in ice. They were dismissed by the classical um, world as, as, as fables. But we know Arctica and Antarctica is covered in ice. And so when you get an impression that there were stories coming through from an older age. The imagination, the mind, is very free. If you get people like Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, Jules Verne had a rocket going to the moon in more or less the same time, a bit the same shape as the rocket that went to the moon. There's a wonderful description of spaghetti junctions of Birmingham in H.G. Uh, Wells so that the sleeper awakes. You know, it is just like it. And of these new little hover aeroplanes with one man in them, too. Um, if you get the mind working at full stretch, it can... I don't know whether it picks up from the future, but it certainly seems to have a, a great spread. And if you then say, this really happened, I think you're on very tricky ground, myself. But very interesting. I mean, it's worth, worth thinking about flying saucers. But it seemed to me to be a visionary rather than likely. I didn't think the evidence sort of added up to enough. What uh, likely your theories stand on them? Yes, it, it does. But because at that time, these sea peoples came from Greece, Crete, um, Cyprus, either driven out by the Celtic Vedic people or whatever, and they smashed every town. So the whole idea that they just spent ten years besieging one town, which is tiny, it's terribly unlikely that they could spend all that time besieging it. But I think the big siege could have been Tyre, in fact, for various reasons. The, 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 the ruler of Tyre was called the Ahiram, and the Priam was the, was the, was the ruler of Troy. The Etruscans were called the Tyrrhenians, the Tyrrhenian Sea and everything, you know. And so the, uh, the, the, the theory was that the, whoever fled from Troy went and founded um, Rome. In, this is the story in Virgil stopping off at Carthage, which is where the Phoenicians founded the colony and going on up. Um, so you get um, a, a very big story that has been compressed, what's been, um, in Greece they call it the unities, when you make a drama all take place in one place and one time. It's, it's a great dramatic device that they liked um, in all their tragedies uh, were meant to take. If the, if the play took three hours, then all the action that in, in it should only take three hours. 
And if it happened in one place on the stage, it should all happen in one place. And so all the events that happen somewhere else are all just described by messengers coming in or whatever. And so Homer is slightly in that tradition. It's, it's observing the unities. It's bringing into focus and therefore rather limiting the circumference of what was a massive movement. And there's one um, quite... Have we got time? Are you looking at the clock a bit? There, there is actually one quite good bit of corroboration for this. That, uh, it, it comes in my book, The Age of Myth. But um, one of the pharaohs, had these sea peoples crash down and be repelled. And Ulysses pretends to be a Cretan when he arrives back at Ithaca and describes exactly the same situation where he brings out a fleet, goes down to Egypt, but they're already prepared for him, masses of swords all along, all the bowmen ready, and he is only just spares his life by throwing down his arms and begging um, hospitality of the pharaoh, actually clutching his knees in, in the chariot. And uh, he, he gets away with it. But it's, it's quite good corroboration of the two um, periods, one from an Egyptian source, totally unrelated, one, one from Homer. That is quite a good note to finish on.